Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. On July 9, 2018, after much speculation, President Donald Trump nominated Judge Brett Kavanaugh to serve as the next Associate Justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Kavanaugh, who currently serves on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, would replace Anthony Kennedy, who has long been viewed as a swing vote on the court and a bulwark against the erosion of women's reproductive rights and other civil liberties. With that seat in play, activists on both sides are appealing to U.S. Senators in an effort to affect their votes in the judicial confirmation process. Not only is Kavanaugh replacing a justice thought of as a critical swing vote, but he's also only 53, meaning that he could serve on the court for decades, leaving a lasting imprint from the Trump presidency. When I recently took a poll of Patreon supporters of this podcast, asking them to choose one of two current events topics to serve as the basis of an episode, the winning result was the future of the Supreme Court, clearly timely in light of Kavanaugh's nomination. So I went to work recruiting constitutional law experts to serve as guests. My cup ran over as I recruited four guests, and so I'm doing two episodes with two guests each. For this episode, I spoke to two law professors, each of whom has participated in cases at the appellate level and each of whom is deeply knowledgeable of Kavanaugh's record. We discuss a range of issues, starting with Kavanaugh's record with respect to the Guantanamo military commissions set up during the administration of President George W. Bush, and we move on to other topics. This episode is titled, A Mighty Pen, Part 1. The commissions have a, a long history in the wake of 9-11. That is Peter Margulies, who is professor of law at Roger Williams University School of Law. He teaches national security law, immigration law, and international law. He also speaks and writes widely about national security and immigration issues. He's also, in one case, served as co-counsel on an amicus brief in a matter that came before Judge Kavanaugh. They started with an order by President Bush that established military commissions. That order was uh, eventually struck down by the Supreme Court in the Hamdan case from 2006, where the court said that there was no adequate statutory authority for the order that President Bush had issued. That led Congress to set up uh, its own scheme in the Military Commissions Act of 2006 to address the Supreme Court's concerns. Since then, we've had a few proceedings in military commissions, including a couple of trials in 2008, uh, one involving Hamdan himself, who subsequently been released, uh, and a case where Judge Kavanaugh then on the D.C. Circuit said that Hamdan's conviction uh, would have violated the ex post facto clause. Uh, and we've had another case, the Al Balul case, that was litigated 
in an epic fashion in the D.C. Circuit, also featuring Judge Kavanaugh. In that case, the conviction was upheld. Uh, and that case also involves some ex post facto issues, as well as issues involving Congress's power and federal judicial power. And so right now we have uh, some uncertainty about military commissions because uh, civilian attorneys in a couple of very important cases have sought to resign from representing defendants in those commissions. And it's not clear what commission judges can do to force those lawyers to participate. So we have kind of an impasse right now. Uh, and some folks hope that the cases will go forward. I know General Mark Martins, who's the prosecutor in charge, wants to do that. But there has been uncertainty. Uh, we've also had uh, convening authorities uh, who've resigned. Uh, Harvey Rishikoff was, was basically forced to, um, to leave the post. It's not yet clear exactly why that happened. There have been reports that one thing that Harvey Rishikoff tried to do was set up a deal that would have, uh, in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, uh, allowed the defendants in some of the most prominent cases to plead guilty. Uh, but since Harvey resigned, uh, that, those matters are up in the air as well. So I'd have to say that although there are a couple of court decisions that indicated that commissions uh, can go forward, and there have been some dispositions. Uh, we, we'd like to see more dispositions, and at the moment, there's still uncertainty that prevails. I, I would just add, I mean, I think, you know, Peter mentioned... That is Stephen Vladek, the A. Dalton Cross Professor in Law at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law. Vladek's teaching and research focus on federal jurisdiction, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. On multiple cases, he has served as either co-counsel or amici on matters that have come before Judge Kavanaugh, and it's also worth noting that he was a part of a legal team that participated in the Hamdan versus Rumsfeld Supreme Court case. You know, Peter mentioned the sort of the debate over trying offenses that are not necessarily international war crimes. I, I think it's really important for folks who haven't spent a lot of time looking at the commissions to stress that this is really the core controversial um, substantive jurisdictional question that has really been at the heart of the commissions since the Military Commissions Act in 2006. So, you know, there have been eight convictions, um, all or part of seven of those convictions included charges that are not international war crimes. Uh, I think through parts of all or parts of four of those convictions have subsequently been either vacated or reversed on appeal. And, and I think the, the point here is that this is the most significant way in which the Guantanamo commissions really have departed from the pre-9-11 precedents, from the World War II era commissions where we tried, you know, Nazi and other Axis war criminals, which is that we're not just trying clearly established international war crimes, we're also trying this other category of offenses that the government says are, you know, violations of the domestic laws of war, but for which there's no settled precedent recognizing the jurisdiction of military commissions. And so, you know, when Peter talks about the uncertainty, I mean, there's uncertainty in lots of different respects. There's uncertainty about, as Peter noted, some of the ethical issues in the Nishiri case. There's uncertainty about the, you know, relationship between the Defense Department and the convening authority. But really, to me, the, the uncertainty that rules them all 
is the uncertainty over whether or not it is constitutional for non-Article Three military commissions to try, you know, these combatants for offenses that I think we all now recognize and agree are not clearly established international war crimes. And I say all that not just because that's an important piece of understanding the sort of shadow of illegitimacy that still lingers over the commissions, but that's the place where I think, you know, Judge Kavanaugh has had the most uh, uh, impact and has played the largest role among all the judges looking at these cases. I think Steve is right to highlight that issue. Uh, And Judge Kavanaugh has been quite forthright in discussing his position. So what he said is that going forward, Congress has wide latitude in defining crimes that can be tried in military commissions. So that could include uh, virtually any conduct that a combatant in an armed conflict against the United States engaged in. One example that Judge Kavanaugh gave, although he didn't definitively opine on this, is the example of some kind of cyber attack by a, an adversary of the United States. Could Congress designate that as a crime to be tried in a military commission? Although merely engaging in some kind of cyber attack without more is not an international war crime. You need something additional like uh, deliberate attack on civilians to qualify. So Judge Kavanaugh certainly does stand for the proposition that Congress has wide latitude and define what military commissions can try. Uh, And that's a a view that uh, has drawn a lot of criticism from Steve uh, and from other folks. Uh, I personally would like to see at least some middle ground where there's some tie to international law. Uh, One question where that arises is, uh, what about charging conspiracy in military commissions? As you know, conspiracy in ordinary criminal law has been called the prosecutor's darling, right? Because you can charge anyone for an agreement with other parties to commit an illegal act as long as that person has demonstrated an intention to commit the act. And you need only a modest overt act, uh, like, for example, casing a bank for the purposes of a subsequent robbery. International law is never uh, authorized inchoate conspiracy of that kind that hinges largely on intent without any completed action. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh signaled that uh, he probably would be pretty deferential to Congress uh, if uh, Congress had specified that conspiracy could be tried, and Congress has has basically so specified. One question, one case where that will come up is a case uh, involving a defendant named al-Iraqi or al-Hadi who was apprehended by the U.S. trying to get into Iraq for the purpose, allegedly, of launching attacks against U.S. service personnel, U.S. forces in Iraq. There was only an inchoate crime as an intention to commit a crime because al-Hadi was apprehended before he got a chance to actually commit any act. Uh, And so that case, when it's teed up, uh, will very concretely and specifically raise the issue uh, of whether the military commissions have authority to try inchoate crimes like conspiracy without any completed act. 
So I, I want to jump in here and actually direct a question to Steve. And I heard Peter suggesting that Kavanaugh's record suggests a willingness to defer to Congress. But what I'm curious about is deference to the executive branch. So, so Steve, when you look at Kavanaugh's record vis a vis these commissions, do you have a sense of how deferential he would likely be to the executive branch on issues of national security? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that actually, you know, the, the commissions aren't necessarily a great foil for answering that question, because when, we, when we're talking about the commissions, we're talking about an area where Congress has actually been fairly active. And so I think if Judge Kavanaugh were here, he would say that what the courts are really doing is not simply construing text of statutes or executive branch arguments, but actually they're construing the sort of joint product of congressional statutes and executive interpretations thereof. And so in that context, I think, you know, Kavanaugh would say, obviously, courts should be especially um, respectful of the other political branches working in concert. You know, frankly, I think the area where there's much more, I think, room to um, debate just how deferential Judge Kavanaugh is to the executive branch is the other side of Guantanamo, is the, the pure detention cases, where we're not talking about the efforts to try in these non-Article Three military commissions, um, you know, these enemy combatants, but where the government is simply holding enemy combatants without trial, um, you know, detaining them under the, the laws of war. And, and, you know, in that space, I think Judge Kavanaugh has been extremely, um, at least to my mind, excessively uh, deferential to the executive branch, um, in some cases even, you know, adopting or supporting arguments about the scope of the government's detention authority, about the procedural rules that should govern the habeas cases, that not even the executive branch itself was making, um, right? And so, you know, he's in that space, I think, you know, he has a very sweeping view of just how much power the executive branch ought to have when it comes to the detention of non-citizens and enemy combatants, um, so much so that he's willing to make those arguments even when the executive branch itself isn't. Um, that's a remarkable you know, degree of deference in the abstract, and it's especially remarkable, Michael, I think, in contrast to the skepticism that he often shows you know, toward the executive branch when we're talking about more ordinary domestic administrative law type disputes. Peter? Let me say one quick thing more about military commissions, just to illustrate the other side of Judge Kavanaugh's view, uh, which is that I I do think when the law is written, as Judge Kavanaugh puts it, clearly points to a result that would favor a defendant, Judge Kavanaugh will reach that result. And the case in point there is the Hamdan case, Hamdan was convicted of material support of terrorism. Judge Kavanaugh said that uh, as of the relevant date uh, for uh, the conviction, which is 2001, Congress had not yet specified that material support was a crime tribal in military commissions. It had said that uh, the, you look to the law of war, to the international law of war, what constitutes a war crime to determine what can be tried. It's undisputed in 2001, material support was not an offense under the laws of war. Judge Kavanaugh wrote a very meticulous opinion 
going through treaties, international law precedent, the views of commentators that all point in that direction, that material support couldn't be tried. It wasn't a war crime at that time. And Judge Kavanaugh then said we have to interpret the statute to avoid what would otherwise have been a colossal problem under what's called the ex post facto clause, which says basically you can't change the rules of the game uh, in the middle of the game, that Congress can't play gotcha, uh, a, a statute that clearly uh, makes conduct criminal uh, can only be applied to conduct that was engaged in after the statute was enacted. Uh, otherwise, people always looking over their shoulder saying, have I done something that will later turn out to be criminal? And that's a core tenet of the Constitution, a core limitation on the ability of Congress to uh, basically uh, uh, tyrannize its own population. Uh, and that's something that Britain did, that the framers wanted to avoid. Judge Kavanaugh recognized that. That's why he said, Hamdan will interpret the statute to say material support is not a war crime. And as a result, he wrote an excellent opinion of invalidating Hamdan's conviction. So that's an example of where the law is written, uh, has allowed Judge Kavanaugh to push back against the government. Uh, so I think in, in that respect, he has been very consistent in his philosophy and has been fair to defendants in a way that uh, you'd hope uh, any good judge would be. Can I say, before, before, I mean, I just, Peter knows that I disagree with him fairly vehemently on this point, but I think it's worth explaining why. I mean, the Judge Kavanaugh's opinion for the panel in Hamdan 2 in October 2012 is exactly as Peter summarizes it. The problem is, is that not two years later, when in the Al-Balul case, the D.C. Circuit went on bonk and to a large degree overruled Judge Kavanaugh, he wrote, I think, a very to my mind, um, quixotic, um, solo concurring opinion, where in a footnote, he actually ran away from some of the very holdings Peter was just celebrating. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's certainly true that Judge Kavanaugh is not a knee-jerk jurist who blindly sides with the executive branch whenever one of these cases comes before him. But I still think that the larger point remains that, you know, he is broadly deferential, that he is willing to embrace arguments not even the executive branch has made, um, and that he's, you know, quite happy blazing new ground um, in areas where, you know, I would have thought someone who believes as he purports to in judicial restraint might be a little more careful. So, you know, some folks might see that as a feature, not a bug. I just think it's, you know, it's a undeniable feature of his, of his Guantanamo jurisprudence. Well, I, I do not presume that we're going to resolve your disagreement in this episode, <laughs> but I am curious, and I'll actually put this question first to Peter. If you had the ear of senators on the Judiciary Committee who are preparing questions for the confirmation hearing, what sorts of questions would you suggest that they raise in order to probe these issues of deference to the executive branch that we've been discussing. One thing I'd want to ask is, what is Judge Kavanaugh's view about the scope of war powers that are delegated to the president under the Constitution? That's a very important question. Perhaps there's no question that's more important. Uh, and Judge Kavanaugh has, has written an excellent piece, uh, a book review of a book by David Barron, 
who's now our judge of the First Circuit, in which Judge Kavanaugh actually articulated a pretty mainstream view in which Congress is largely supreme on war powers. And the president has an executive role, but not a role in initiating armed conflict. That's and a mainstream, that that's a mainstream view in theory, but it hasn't worked out that way in practice a lot. Well, it's, it's certainly true that the presidents of both parties historically yeah. have tried to aggrandize authority for themselves. Uh, President Trump did that with the two strikes against Syria. President Obama did that in arguing the war powers resolution didn't apply to U.S. intervention in Libya. Yep. Uh, so that's been a mainstay of presidents of both parties. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh's piece uh, pushed back against that and said uh, we ought to return to first principles when it comes to looking at war powers uh, and looking at what the framers did, which is to say Congress ought to be supreme on that key question of whether to authorize an armed conflict in the first place, even though once you get into an armed conflict, a defensive one where you're trying to repel an invasion, the president will, of necessity, have a lot of discretion how to conduct that armed conflict. So I think it's important to bring that out uh, as one facet of, of Kavanaugh's views on this issue. Steve, what would you advise the senator to ask? Well, I, 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 think, I, mean, I think there's a there's a threshold question, which is what is the purpose of the question? Um, is the goal to try to you know elicit from Judge Kavanaugh a soundbite that, that you could then use against him if you wanted to vote against him? You know, I, I think the reality is Judge Kavanaugh is too smart for that. He's you know he's too careful for that. It's not going to happen. Um, if the goal is to get him on record saying something that you might then you know use against a future nominee. I mean, I think one of the things that I find exasperating in current discussions of judicial nominations is the claim you often hear from conservatives that, you know, the best judicial nominees are the ones who are going to strictly apply the law. Um, as Chief Justice Roberts, I think, unfortunately said at his confirmation hearing, the ones who are going to call balls and strikes. You know, the reality is that um, judges of all ideological stripes find cases where they have to make law. Um, and Judge Kavanaugh has been no exception. And so the Guantanamo cases are an example of that. I think an even stronger example of that is an Abu Ghraib torture suit that he was involved in in 2009, um, where the panel, uh, in a majority opinion that he joined, basically fashioned a judge-made federal common law defense to displace state tort law that would otherwise have applied to a tort suit by Abu Ghraib victims against a private military contractor. Now, listen, folks might think that that's appropriate, that when it comes to torts committed in combat theaters, um, federal courts should you know, be fashioning federal rules as opposed to state rules to govern those suits. My point is, here we have conservative judges doing exactly what we often hear them criticizing so-called liberal or progressive judges for doing. So I'd really want, if I were a senator, to get Judge Kavanaugh perhaps to run away from this whole, all we do is call balls and strikes. And, you know, we conservative judges, all we do is faithfully apply the law and try to talk about the circumstances, given his record, where he thinks it is not only appropriate, but necessary for judges to engage in what really is lawmaking. Um, because there are plenty of examples in his own jurisprudence. Um, and it might be fascinating to finally have a, you know, popular conservative federal appeals judge 
explaining on the record exactly why there are circumstances where even he thinks it's the proper and appropriate role of unelected, you know, federal life tenure judges to actually fashion rules of decision when the legislature hasn't. So as a follow-up, uh, did I understand you correctly, Steve, in, uh, in that you were saying that there are examples already in his record where he has said that there are instances in which it's appropriate for judges or justices to do that? Well, not where he's said it, but where he's done it. And so, you know, if I were a senator, I'd want to pull up some of these cases. For example, the Saleh case from 2009. Um, for example, his dissent in Doe versus ExxonMobil. For example, some of the Guantanamo cases where, you know, without reflecting on it, where without sort of pausing to say, woe is me, I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> you know, Judge Kavanaugh did what federal judges do, which is filled gaps and or, you know, fashioned either rules of decision or defenses out of common law um, in ways that I think is just the nature of the beast. Like, I, I just, I think it's a lacuna and I think it's a, it's not a lacuna, I think it's, it's worse, it's a canard that conservative judges, that, that, that the difference between conservative and liberal judges is conservative judges follow the laws written and liberal judges legislate from the bench. What was, it's just a question of, it's just a question of which context each kind of judge does it in. Well, I'm not familiar with the ExxonMobil case you referred to. Can you describe that? So Doe versus ExxonMobil is a case about the alien tort statute, um, which is this, I think the, the Second Circuit once called it a legal Lohengrin. Um, this you know, statute that dates all the way back to 1789 that has been interpreted by modern courts, including the Supreme Court, in a 2004 case called Sosa, to authorize damages suits by non-citizens um, arising out of violations of the laws of nations, uh, which the Supreme Court and Sosa interpreted to include um, basically uh, violations of non-derogable universal norms um, of international human rights law. And, you know, conservatives have been very critical of these cases and of this litigation because of what they claim is, you know, sort of the lawmaking the courts must do to give life to the alien tort statute. But at the same time, if you look at the cases that have scaled back on the alien tort statute, um, right, if you look at, for example, the Supreme Court's 2012 decision in the Kiobel case um, or the court's re- decision earlier this year in the Jesner case, you know, the, the, the ways that the court has pushed back on the scope of the alien tort statute has been atextual, has been through reading into the statute limitations that just aren't there. And listen, I'm not trying to say that they're wrong. My point is that there's no, it is, it is superficial and it is unconvincing um, to, to sort of shorthand cons- a conservative judge as someone who strictly follows the law. And so if I were a senator, you know, instead of trying to pin Judge Kavanaugh down on a specific substantive topic, I really want to get him talking about, you know, why, I, I'd, I'd want him to actually, you know, explain when he thinks part of the job of a judge is to do what Congress and the executive branch haven't done, is to fill in the gaps, um, hopefully with an eye toward trying to create this public record, that guess what? Everybody does it. Here's a, uh, maybe a sidelight here that could be useful in explaining a bit about Judge Kavanaugh's philosophy, particularly with respect to international law, and it ties in with the alien tort statute in the following way. The, the issue in, in Dovi Exxon Mobil is really whether corporations could be sued under the statute. 
And as he said, the Supreme Court in the Jesner case, Jesner versus Arab Bank from this term, a case in which I participated, wrote an amicus brief, Supreme Court said that no, corporations could not be cognizable defendants. They couldn't be sued under the alien tort statute. Well, wait, Judge you know, Kennedy, I guess, I guess Kennedy, foreign corporations, not all corporations. Well, well right, foreign corporations. So there's a, a, a question about domestic corporations uh, and where their actions touch and concern the United States. But foreign corporations can't be sued. The court made that clear. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion uh, he engaged in the kind of atextual analysis that Steve has described in saying, if we allowed foreign corporations to be sued, that would wreak havoc on the foreign relations of the United States. Uh, we should have Congress state its uh, attention clearly if Congress wants courts to run that risk. Judge right? uh, Kavanaugh clearly feels exactly the same way about the potential risks of international law being applied by federal courts. Uh, and that's also at the heart of his jurisprudence on detention of Gitmo detainees, where he said uh, international law doesn't really play a role, even though the government said, uh, in fact, it does. That's the kind of case where Kavanaugh has even gone further, as Steve has said, than the government, saying, no, international law is, is not something that's binding here, uh, because we worry about international law impairing the flexibility of the United States to deal with the ever-shifting domain uh, of foreign relations. Another case that Steve knows far better than I, another situation which that may become important if Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed, is the situation involving cross-border shootings by Customs and Border Patrol officers. We had a case in which Steve uh, was uh, counsel, uh, Hernandez v. Mesa, last term, where the Supreme Court vacated and remanded for additional proceedings in the Fifth Circuit. Fifth Circuit said you couldn't sue a Customs and Border Patrol officer for a cross-border shooting, even if that was arguably a negligent or even intentional shooting. Then very recently, last couple of days, in fact, you've had a Ninth Circuit decision is exactly the opposite, which says that you can sue. Uh, and so that question may well end up before the Supreme Court. Uh, and I do think it's fair to ask questions about how Judge Kavanaugh would feel about that kind of case. Would he feel that uh, the doctrine that says U.S. statutes shouldn't be applied extraterritorially unless Congress has clearly said so, whether well, that would mean that the court should be reluctant to recognize the suit for damages in this kind of cross-border shooting by Customs and Border Patrol situation? I don't know if you have any views on that, Steve. I know this is close to your heart. Well, I mean, it's, I, I, I guess I, just two quick points, because uh, I know Michael probably wants to move on. I mean, so first, I mean, Kavanaugh actually has specifically addressed that, Peter, as you know, in the Mashal case, right. um, where he wrote a whole long concurring opinion that I think quite remarkably tries to argue that the statutory presumption against extraterritorial application should also map on to the Constitution um, and to remedies, to judge-made right. remedies for constitutional violations. Um, you know, I've, I've argued in writing and in our briefs in the Hernandez case that that's just incoherent. If you look at why we actually, the justifications for not assuming that Congress intends for statutes to apply extraterritorially just don't map onto the Constitution. Um, but more generally, I mean, I, I do actually think Jesner really does underscore the larger point I'm trying to make about Judge Kavanaugh, um, which is, you know, the case went to the Supreme Court 
on the question of whether corporations can be liable under the Alien Tort Statute. The statute itself says nothing at all about that. Um, it just says that the plaintiff has to be an alien. Um, and rather than decide that question, which the Supreme Court had also ducked in the Kiobel case back in 2012, um, the court decided to, 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 to resolve a narrower question, which is whether the statute could apply to foreign corporations. Now, not only is there no textual support for you know, having the statute either apply or not apply to corporations, there's certainly no textual support for drawing the distinction that, this, that the court in Jesner draws, which is between foreign corporations and domestic corporations. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, folks may be quite comfortable with the results that the courts are reaching, that conservative judges and justices are reaching in this context. Indeed, I think there are, you know, powerful policy reasons, many of which Justice Kennedy lays out in his opinion in Jesner for not subjecting foreign corporations to alien tort statute liability. All I'm trying to say is that what these judges are doing when they're issuing these rulings is exactly what the you know, popular culture thinks is what liberal judges do, which is you know, making policy decisions that may be perfectly defensible, but that really don't have obvious bases in the text, in the relevant texts, and in the relevant you know, sort of context. And so I say all that just to say, this is why I think the Kavanaugh nomination is so interesting, because you know, unlike, for example, a Justice Gorsuch replacing a Justice Scalia, where the daylight between the two really is very modest. There's so much daylight between Justice Kennedy and Justice Kavanaugh and, and Judge and potentially Justice Kavanaugh that that's why I think this conversation is important um, to sort of you know put to rest the notion that there's something fundamentally different about the processes conservative judges use versus liberal judges as opposed to just which processes, which processes they apply to which substantive questions. So I do want to jump in and, and with this question, I want to begin to transition us from matters of foreign policy to and national security to domestic matters. And Steve, I'm going to put this question to you first because um, I'm going to quote from an article by Ron Brownstein at uh, the Atlantic where uh, you were actually quoted in this article. And at one point, the article says that, as, as you see it, Kavanaugh's record suggests the potential for, quote, broad deference to the executive branch on foreign policy and national security. And then the quote ends, but goes on to say, uh, coupled with extreme skepticism on domestic regulation. So if Brownstein is characterizing your views accurately, uh, you are saying that, uh, Kavanaugh's record implies deference to the executive branch in some matters, namely foreign policy and national security, but uh, less so in domestic regulation, particularly with the EPA. I wonder if you could elaborate on the views that uh, you were uh, describing there. Sure. I mean, I think Judge Kavanaugh has been quite emphatic um, in his jurisprudence throughout his tenure on the D.C. Circuit that he is deeply skeptical of some of the deference doctrines that the Supreme Court has articulated when it comes to modern administrative law. This is the idea that um, in a dispute with a federal agency over the meaning of a statute that the agency enforces or regulations that the agency has issued under that statute, um, the notion is that you know, certain interpretations 
of ambiguous language in those statutes or in those regulations by the agencies are entitled to deference because the agencies are experts, because the agencies are in a better position to decide you know, what that text really means, because the agencies basically are the ones dealing with these issues on a daily basis. And, you know, Kavanaugh is not alone in his criticism of these doctrines, but I think he is, you know, very interestingly, a core believer in presidential power, but not necessarily administrative agency power, where he thinks that there's something deeply anti-democratic um, and also hostile to sort of the role of the courts to give that kind of interpretive power and that kind of interpretive benefit of the doubt to agencies that are generally staffed by bureaucrats um, and that are generally administered by unelected, and I think to his mind, largely unaccountable presidential appointees. Um, and that, that's a big part of you know, why in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a lot more, I think, skepticism of the administrative state from conservative judges, from conservative scholars. You know, here, I think, unlike in the Guantanamo context, Kavanaugh isn't necessarily leading the charge, but he's certainly one of the more prominent um, uh, pro provocateurs, one of the more prominent uh, uh, sort of jurists in the trenches in these, in these areas. I'll take a somewhat more um, agnostic view about Kavanaugh in this setting. I do think Kavanaugh is very eager to you know, put administrative agencies to their proof when it comes to the need for regulation. And he is much less willing to reflexively defer to what agencies do. Uh, and he has been a leader in that, I think. Uh, so a, a case in point there is a case called U Utility Air Regulatory Group, UARG where the Supreme Court held an opinion by Justice Scalia that uh, the EPA couldn't regulate uh, a lot of uh, stationary sources like apartment buildings or department stores that emitted carbon dioxide, clear uh, ingredient in global warming, uh, because uh, Scalia said in his opinion, uh, there's no indication Congress wanted the EPA to have authority over these thousands of sort of ordinary stationary sources like apartment buildings, uh, which had never before been part of the EPA's purview. Scalia's reasoning owes a great deal to reasoning of Judge Kavanaugh in the D.C. Circuit opinion in that case. Uh, and frankly, I think that decision is exactly right. Uh, I think there was a, a failure of proportion in the way the EPA looked at its ability to regulate here. And in fact, the EPA recognized it, saying Congress didn't intend for us to regulate apartment buildings and department stores. So I, I think there is a common sense view, a pragmatic view, if you will, to Justice Kavanaugh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh's view on this subject. But sometimes he carries it too far. Uh, so there's another case called Michigan versus EPA where I think Congress pretty clearly wanted to give the EPA wide discretion to, to regulate power plants, which do emit a great deal of pollution, both of the, the standard kind, uh, carbon monoxide, uh, and greenhouse gases. Uh, and Congress said the EPA can do that if it is necessary and appropriate to do so. That necessary and appropriate language to me is language that usually is viewed as conferring a great deal of discretion on the executive. But here, Kavanaugh said uh, there was very little discretion. In fact, EPA didn't have the power to do this. 
the Supreme Court uh, then uh, upheld Kavanaugh's view and limited the agency. That, I think, went way too far. And so trying to find that balance, I think, is important. So I like to see senators uh, try to probe a bit more on uh, where exactly does deference stop when it comes to regulation uh, of the environment. So just as a follow-up, and either of you who wants to take a cut at this first may do so, I wonder if you would agree with my intuition, which is that if Steve's right, that a justice Kavanaugh might be more deferential on matters of foreign policy and national security than domestic regulation, would that tend to result in outcomes that are more congenial to Republicans than Democrats. That is, freer reign on foreign policy and national security, but a tighter reign of actions by domestic regulatory agencies. I think the answer to that is yes, right now. Um, but, you know, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh is a young guy. If he's on the Supreme Court for 25 or 30 years, I think we could easily see a shift um, where, you know, all of a sudden the, you know, the, the, the shoes are on the other foot and it's, you know, Democrats who really are pushing for broad deference to the executive branch in foreign affairs, but tighter constraints on the administrative state um, and Republicans in the other direction. You know, these things tend to be cyclical. I think the, one of the, one of the real questions is whether the, what, whether time will prove that for someone like Judge Kavanaugh, um, his views really do transcend who happens to be in charge of the relevant branches at the relevant times, or whether, as I think some have worried, especially given his role in, among other things, the, you know, the Ken Starr Independent Counsel investigation, whether, at least to some degree, um, his views of the executive branch and of the deference owed to them are at least in some regard related to his views of who's sitting atop the executive branch and his substantive agreement with their policy priorities. And, you know, I don't think that his record on the D.C. Circuit bears out that criticism, um, certainly not to the extent it's been offered. But I do think it's something that we can only be, we'll only be able to assess over time. One question I'll also highlight when it comes to the, the regulatory state uh, is a question involving the composition of regulatory agencies. So that was an issue in a case called PHH Corp versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where uh, Judge Kavanaugh wrote a very vigorous dissent saying that the Consumer Finance uh, Protection Bureau was a, a sort of constitutional atrocity because it has a single director instead of uh, a multi-member commission like the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, and the single director is only removable by the president for cause. Right? Uh, and so, so those two things together make this deeply problematic from a constitutional point of view. Uh, that uh, decision will probably uh, be revisited by the court at some point in the next couple of years, because there are a couple of other challenges to the CFPB that are percolating up through the courts. Uh, and so one thing I'd want to ask Judge Kavanaugh is, is how he feels about uh, what we sometimes call the unitary presidency, which is uh, the mm -hmm. president's power to control the entire executive branch uh, versus having uh, regulatory agencies that are in some measure independent because Congresses feel uh, that independence is necessary for them to properly do their jobs.
your reference, Peter, to the unitary theory transitions, I think, into a question I have about U.S. Uh, v. Nixon. And so that's a pretty well-known uh, Supreme Court decision where the court unanimously ordered Nixon to turn over uh, tape recordings and other subpoenaed material. And Kavanaugh in 1999 expressed some doubts uh, about the correctness of that decision, but then in 2016 has also uh, praised the decision as an example of of the judicial branch asserting itself. So I wonder... I wonder how much uh, Robert Mueller should be worrying or those who are eager for Mueller to be able to do his work, how much uh, we should worry given Kavanaugh's comments in 1999 and his potential ascension, uh, or frankly, his likely ascension to the court. Uh, I think Generally, uh, people should have some concern and certainly some interest about what Judge Kavanaugh would decide in this situation. I'm not quite as concerned about the comments on U.S. versus Nixon. I, I do think that Judge Kavanaugh has walked that back in a very sincere way. And I think it's of a piece with his concern about war powers. He needs some check on the presidency uh, in order to have a workable government, which is what the framers intended. But I do think there are questions about uh, how Judge Kavanaugh would view an effort uh, by President Trump to fire Robert Mueller. As you know, there's a regulation, a Justice Department regulation, that says that the president can't fire a special counsel unilaterally, has to go through the relevant official in the Justice Department, who here would be Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, because Sessions has recused himself. It's not clear to me that uh, Trump will necessarily see fit to uh, accede to that. He may at some point, I hope he doesn't, but at some point he may try to fire Mueller. It's not clear to me that a Justice Kavanaugh would find that that was legally impermissible. He might find this regulation in the Justice Department to be an invasion of the president's own authority over his own appointees. I mean, I generally agree with Peter. Um, I mean, the, I think the one point that I think is worth stressing is if it gets to this point, I really don't imagine that Judge Kavanaugh is going to be the swing vote, um, right? That that is to say that that the other eight justices would be evenly divided, and it would all rise and fall on what a Justice Kavanaugh believed. And you know, we can look to history. I mean, the the, the Nixon Watergate tapes case was eight nothing, with Chief Justice Berger writing the majority, you know, writing the the unanimous opinion of the court. Um, the court's 1997 decision, Clinton versus Jones, was nine nothing, and so you know, I, I think the likelihood of Kavanaugh being in a position to have to cast the deciding vote in a case involving Special Counsel Mueller and President Trump is really so small as to make this mostly a distraction. Um, I think the larger and, to my mind, far more troubling implications of Kavanaugh's, you know, earlier hostility to the Nixon case and of his, I think, far clearer ongoing hostility to the court's subsequent decision in Morrison versus Olson is what it portends in the longer term for the administrative state. Um, you know, assuming we all survive the current presidency, you know, there's going to be a government after Donald Trump. And 
what's that going to look like? Um, you know, what role is the sort of New Deal understanding of the power of the executive branch and the role of the executive branch in our society going to play and how's it going to evolve if actually there are, as there may now be, um, five votes to scale back, not just Morrison versus Olson, which upheld the idea of an independent council who could be protected from good cause removal, but also maybe even Humphrey's executor, um, the 1935 Supreme Court decision that really is, I think, a critically, if you know, underappreciated piece of the modern administrative state where the court upheld the idea of quasi-independent executive branch agencies, like in that case, the Federal Trade Commission. So, you know, I understand why folks are basically gravitating toward, you know, how will Kavanaugh view Mueller? Um, I think that's missing the boat. I think it's missing, you know, a far larger forest for one very unlikely tree. I don't read Kavanaugh as a acolyte of Justice Thomas in that respect. So Thomas, I think, has pretty clearly expressed a broad-based skepticism about the underpinnings for the administrative state. Kavanaugh, in contrast, has said a lot of good things about the Chevron doctrine, which is the doctrine that requires courts to largely defer to administrative agencies. And his pushback against regulation has occurred within the context of Chevron. So I view Kavanaugh as being in that respect closer to Scalia or even possibly to Kennedy rather than to a, a true constitutional radical like Justice Thomas. Thank you so much, Senator Murray. I had hoped that this president would appoint a consensus justice, a person ready to protect the rights of all Americans. The Supreme Court should be above partisan politics. But make no mistake, Justice Kavanaugh will not be that justice. President Trump has been clear about his test for judicial nominations. At campaign rallies over and over again, he promised to nominate anti-choice judges who would, as he said, quote, automatically, unquote, overturn Roe versus Wade. So it is clear. President Trump, the Heritage Foundation, and the Federalist Society believe that they can count on Judge Kavanaugh to cast that... This will certainly move us toward the final topic that we'll have a chance to discuss. And it's a case that's gotten a lot of discussion um, that we haven't touched on and people would be surprised if we didn't. That's Roe versus Wade. So I wonder if, as you look at Kavanaugh's record, each of you sees anything that might shed light on how likely the addition of Justice Kavanaugh taking the place of Justice Kennedy, how likely that change on the court would be to result in either the overturning of Roe v. Wade or perhaps more probably the uh, sustaining of more state-level restrictions so that we see across the country, this patchwork of differing abortion rights across the country. I, I think that folks who care about reproductive rights have reason to be worried. Judge Kavanaugh, I think, uh, would, would here fall back on his view that the Constitution should be applied as written. Uh, and conservatives have said for a long time that there is nothing written in the Constitution about a right to privacy and certainly not a right to reproductive freedom, including abortion. Uh, so I think some of the state measures that have been uh, percolating in the system, including 
uh, one law that says if you can find a fetal heartbeat, uh, there's no right to an abortion. Uh, I think those statutes are far more likely to be upheld by the court with a Justice Kavanaugh on the court. Uh, and so I think that's a legitimate reason to be concerned. Uh, although, of course, those uh, earlier decisions by the court that protect reproductive freedom are in part protected by the doctrine of stare decisis, which says the court has to respect precedent, that's a prudential doctrine. That is, it's a doctrine that the court will weigh against other factors. And for conservatives who feel deeply that the, the court should defer to state determinations uh, about uh, fetal protection in, in, in the situation, uh, I, I think that Judge Kavanaugh will tend to be a vote for uh, allowing those those state laws to go forward. Steve? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, and, and I think it's worth stressing that, you know, Kavanaugh in this respect, I think is very much like um, his, his friend and former colleague, Chief Justice Roberts, who I think would be very reluctant to sign a majority opinion by the Supreme Court that outright overrules Roe versus Wade because of the backlash it would provoke because of the visibility such a ruling would engender. But I think is per would be perfectly happy signing on to a progressive, and I, I don't mean that in the political sense, uh, an iterative series of rulings that gradually weaken the constitutional protection the court identified in Roe to the point where it's almost pointless. That what we're looking at is death by a thousand cuts, not an outright overruling. And I just, there's no, there's no reason to think that Brett Kavanaugh is going to be an obstacle to that project as opposed to a willing and enthusiastic participant in it. This is not David Souter. This is not Anthony Kennedy. This is not Sandra Day O'Connor. So, you know, I don't think that we're looking at a decision in the next 10 years in which the Supreme Court says Roe is overruled. I do think that upon his confirmation, we will see more and more aggressive efforts by not all states, but certain states, and we can predict which states, to make abortions harder and harder to obtain, even before viability, um, even in the first trimester, um, even when you know, the medical consensus is that the abortion is you know, far safer and perhaps even medically necessary for the pregnant woman compared to bringing the fetus to term. Um, and I think that you know, states are going to be aggressive and that the Supreme Court is probably going to allow them to, to do that. So I think Peter has this exactly right. And as a follow-up, um, would I be correct in surmising that whatever the threats to all women's reproductive rights in the long run, in the near term, the uh, appointment of a Justice Kavanaugh would pose even greater risks to the reproductive rights of some women in particular, such as poor women and women in the South. Am, am I um, am I right there? Oh, I think not only are you right, Michael, but I think it goes. I think it goes beyond reproductive rights. I mean, I think that you know the reality of a solid five justice conservative majority on the Supreme Court is that you know the where we're going to see a whole lot of movement is that's going to be a lot harder for folks who need the government to help them vindicate their constitutional rights to actually be able to rely on the government to do so. Um, and that states that want to be more aggressive when it comes to 
you know, either scaling back anti-discrimination laws or scaling back um, protections for abortion or, you know, other kinds of civil rights measures um, are going to have more and more of an ability to do that. So that where we're going to end up is with really an increasingly polarized America where folks who are either of means or who live in relatively bluer states um, and localities are going to have more rights and more access to their rights than poor folks and folks who live in deeper red states. And, you know, I think that that's really unfortunate, but the only way that you're going to see that, I think, changed is with some real shift either in, you know, the Supreme Court after Justice Kavanaugh, I think that's unlikely, or a real shift in Congress and more efforts to create national legislation that promotes more uniformity on these topics. Peter, you're going to get the last word in the last couple of minutes. I mentioned just one thing as kind of a bookend to the discussion of stare decisis and reproductive rights, which is on the issue of same-sex marriage. I actually think they're more compelling arguments that might well be persuasive for someone like Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Kavanaugh on preserving the legacy of Justice Kennedy upholding gay rights. There you have folks who have reliance interests. They've embarked on a life with another person. Uh, and marginalizing those people for that choice, I think, is something that would strike a number of folks on the court as being uh, an inappropriate exercise of the judicial role. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Peter Margulies and Stephen Vladek for taking the time to talk with me. Check out tatter.fireside.fm and go to the page for this episode for links to information about each of them and also to some of the cases to which they referred. I also want to give a shout out to Jay Barth in the politics department at Hendricks College. Jay is a fellow alum of Hendricks, a recent guest on Tatter, and as someone who teaches con law, he was helpful to me as I drafted questions for this interview. I wouldn't have thought to ask about U.S. v. Nixon, but for his suggestion. As always, to offer feedback on this or any episode, use Twitter. The handle is at tatter underscore rags. You can also go to iTunes and post a review. Finally, to offer monetary support, go to patreon.com slash tatter, where you can do the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee or a beer or a slice of New York-style pizza once a month. I would be appreciative. And also, as with this episode, you might get to help choose an upcoming topic by voting in one of the polls. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.